Morning, everyone. Nice to see you all here. Welcome to those of you who are joining us online as well. We are continuing in our series on the knowledge of the holy, which uh, many of you are reading uh, a couple of chapters a week and uh, discussing in your life groups. And the attribute of God, or the knowledge of the holy that we're looking at this morning, is God's wisdom and omniscience, or his omniscience and wisdom, whichever way you want to put it down there. And as I'm sure many of you have learned in your lifetimes, wisdom and intelligence are not exactly the same thing. Wisdom requires a lot of information. It requires a lot of data in order to operate. You can't make wise decisions if you don't have the information. And so you need knowledge, and it requires intelligence sometimes to process that data. But we also know and have experienced that there are very intelligent people who might be geniuses in sort of the traditional IQ score who are very unwise and lead unwise lives and make unwise decisions. And conversely, there are people who may not score all that highly on traditional IQ tests, um, but who are incredibly wise and make great decisions and uh, live their life in a way uh, that is uh, to be uh, envied. And so wisdom and intelligence aren't the same thing. But God is both intelligent, intelligent, knowledgeable, and wise. God is omniscient. When you, when you think of God, you have to immediately understand that he has all of the data. There is nothing that God does not know, including nothing from the world of intelligentsia. He knows all the laws of mathematics, physics, biology, chemistry, you name it. He knows all those laws, all those formulas that you slaved over in university and in high school. God knows all those things, and he knows how to solve quadratic equations. He invented them. You can either love him or blame him for that. And... God is perfectly wise in his application of his perfect knowledge of everything. He never misapplies the data or the knowledge that he has. When we're talking about the wisdom of God, we could talk about 10,000 things, different individual applications of his wisdom, God applying his wisdom to relationships, to politics, to employment, to negotiation, to our lifestyle, to parenting, to diet, to finances, to hairstyles. The mullet should not come back, okay? I'm just saying that. I've seen it online. I've seen some ball players and people with the mullet. No, okay? That is not wise to bring the mullet back. Actually, anything from the 80s, just forget that decade. Okay, driving along in your K car, listening to Cindy Lauper in your acid wash jeans, sporting a mullet, was never cool. Okay, <laughs> so just forget about the 80s. The 80s were unwise. God knows it. We know it. Just there you go. But, but God, we could go and, and seek the wisdom of God in, in anything. We could talk about 10,000 things that God is wise in and could give us wisdom in. And as Christians, we understand that, that God is wise in every way and can offer us his wisdom. He, he gives us wisdom in the Proverbs and in the prophets and in the law uh, in Scripture. And, and most especially, he gives us wisdom in the teaching of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, the lessons to his disciples and the parables. 
And God's wisdom comes to us through the apostles and by the letters that they wrote to the early church. And his spirit guides us. God's wisdom comes to us in so many different ways. And we could talk about the thousands of things that we could learn from God. And because he knows every point of data, God knows every outcome. Chaos theory is not a thing that God subscribes to. If a butterfly flaps its wings in China, God knows that I'll buy ice cream next Thursday. He understands every atom of the universe and how it interacts. If a bully pushes you down in the playground when you're 11, God knows every effect that it will have on your life. He knows how that will affect your children. Because that day, in grade 13 or grade 10 or whatever, you were bullied. God knows all of it. If you're caught in any sin, God knows exactly what harm it will cause you. And he knows exactly what we need. If you are sinned against, God knows exactly the effect of that sin on your life. The knowledge and the wisdom of God is so infinite, so profound, and so pervasive that it might seem at first like it would be impossible for us to really find the peace that we need when we need it. But we do need that wisdom. And so today, what I, what I hope to show you from Scripture, of course, that, that while God's wisdom it rightly includes the Proverbs and the Prophets and the Law and the Gospels and the letters of the New Testament and, and the Holy Spirit, and we should seek God's wisdom in the Word, and we should pray for God's wisdom and apply it, we absolutely should do that daily. There's a broader sense of the wisdom and omniscience of God that will give some clear structure and direction to the kind of wisdom that we require, and the kind of wisdom without specifics, that we can apply in every situation of our life. The wisdom of God is not just coming to us as pieces of advice or helpful tips written down for us to live by. That's not really the depths of God's wisdom. God's wisdom is something he wants to impart to us so that we ourselves become wise for his glory and for our good. God's wisdom is rooted in one clear, profound, and paradoxical reality of his love towards us. And it's this wisdom that he seeks not only to impart to us like information that goes into our brain, but to transform us so that we know his wisdom and act wisely. God is wise, and he uses that knowledge to act for his glory and our good. He offers us his wisdom in order that we might join him in transforming what Satan thinks will destroy us into what will actually restore us. The wisdom of God is turning shame into glory, defeat into victory, what is broken made whole, what is weakness into strength, and transforming each of us into trophies of his grace. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Let me just pray before we open up the scripture that's going to teach us that. Father God, we thank you for your word. We need your wisdom. We, we both understand and don't understand your omniscience. And so, Father, this morning, as we just come to terms and wrestle with what it means that you know everything and you apply that knowledge perfectly, Father, then how we as disciples will walk in that and it will transform us and we will be trophies of your love and trophies of your grace because of the wisdom 
that you have made available to us and impart to us. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, open our minds to hear what your Holy Spirit would speak to us. In Christ's name, amen. So at the, at the heart of God's wisdom, of course, lies the cross. The, the cross and Christ on the cross, the apparent and paradoxical foolishness of a God that would die for his creation. The, the first and, and foundational aspect of, of God's wisdom has to come from the fact that God was wise in his choice of salvation. So God being eternal and infinite, he had all of eternity, and, and, and being omniscient, he had every piece of data at his disposal to decide for himself the perfect way to save humanity from our sins. And with all of that data and all of that eternity and all of that knowledge, in God's wisdom, with all of that at his disposal, every fact, the knowledge of every action, reaction, every sin, every prayer, every weakness, every strength, every failure and folly of mankind from the beginning to the end of history, with all of that knowledge and all of that time to think about it, God chose our salvation to be accomplished by the suffering and death of his son on a cross. So when you think about the cross, understand that God in his wisdom chose this way to save us. It was infinitely wise for God to save us in this way. That's, like, do you think about that? Do you realize that? that? That God planned this with every piece of data about us ahead of time. He knew it. Every action of God is infinitely wise. And, and so the cross is also infinitely wise in attaining the outcome that God desired, because that's wisdom, right? It's the application of knowledge to attain the outcome that you want. The, the cross was the perfect accomplishment of God's goal, his will, for his glory, and consequently, for our joy. And, and yet, it appears as foolishness to the so-called world, wise of this world, that, that a God would humiliate himself to enter into creation, that he would choose to suffer, who would exchange himself for his enemies. All of that just seems foolishness to the world, and yet, it is the wisdom of God. This is how Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe or the lawyer? Where is the debater of this age? God is not Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly, that's the world's folly, of what we preach to save those who believe. It was in the wisdom of God that he chose the gospel, that Christ would come and die on a Roman's cross in the first century Palestine as a substitution for our sin. That was God's wisdom. God's way of salvation, Paul says here, rejects any human ideas of how salvation should be accomplished, whether by religious law or through philosophical intelligence. Are are we not glad that it was God who chose the way of our salvation rather than us? 
The way of our salvation is not what the philosophers would have come up with. It's not what your teachers at school would have come up with. It's not what the, you know, the intelligentsia would have come up with. The way of our salvation is not what philosophers would have come up with. To them, to all spectrum of people who would think of a way of salvation, the gospel's foolish, Paul says. But it's the wisdom of God. And I'm glad that God is the one who's coming up with our plan of salvation. The following verses after this say that the Jews wanted signs of power and the Greeks wanted something wise and clever. But God didn't save us by our own, you know, silly ideas of what power and wisdom are. He saved us what appeared to be weak and foolish, a son of God dying on a cross. But that is actually true power and wisdom. Not only was the cross unfathomably wise, but the subsequent establishment of the church and the presence of his spirit living in and among still sinful and imperfect followers was wise. The suffering and humility of his church and its subversive victory over every scheme that mankind has devised against it for the past 2,000 years, that plan was also perfectly wise. Even we who are in the church look at it and think, that's a poor plan for saving the world. But how dare we question the wisdom of God? Jesus on the cross, the gospel that makes the church possible, and the church is God's infinitely wise plan for saving humanity. This is the wisdom of God. Paul says in Ephesians 3, 10 to 11, so that through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Through the cross, through Jesus, God has accomplished an eternal purpose. So it's through the cross, through Jesus, that wisdom, that's like the The cross and Christ and our salvation by that substitutionary atonement is like the sun at the center of God's wisdom, and it's shining through all time in all locations. And what Paul says here is that that sun of wisdom is shining through, of all foolish places, through the church, so that God has put his wisdom under the spotlight and on display to heavenly powers and rulers and authorities. Through the church. And I don't even know what that means exactly. Like angels, demons, other supernatural powers, other so-called gods, whatever that means, the church that is made possible by the work of Jesus is the means by which God is displaying his wisdom to these powers and extending the wisdom of his salvation to the world. That's the wisdom of God. The cross is the wisdom of God. The church is the wisdom of God. He has all the data, all the knowledge, all infinity, all eternity to figure this out. And he says, this is the most wise way of salvation. The cross and the church. It's incredible to think about it. And rightly, the world, and sometimes to our own despair, us, think that is foolish. Why would you save us that way? Why would you trust us to be the beacon of your wisdom to the world? 
Of course, Jesus and the gospel is what lies behind the church and what makes the church exist and be possible. But in God's wisdom, he's decided to show how wise he is by displaying that wisdom through the church, through me, through you. You are God's wise choice to display his wisdom. I would not have said that last week. But you are. (laughs) It's not true. I love the church. I've known this verse for a long time. But to think about that, to, to let that sink in, you are God's wise choice to display his wisdom in that cross. It's, it's amazing. It seems like a foolish idea to us. But the scripture is clear. This is the wisdom of God at work. So Paul describes the assembled church thus in our text from 1 Corinthians. If we go back to 1 Corinthians, you go a little further down, You'll see Paul is talking about the church. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Christ is wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And you could say restoration. You could say all the re-words. Renewal, right? All of that good stuff is from the wisdom from God is Jesus Christ and he's righteousness and sanctification and redemption and renewal and restoration, all those things, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So, so through the cross, through Jesus, that, that's shining through all time and all locations, Paul says that this way of salvation by the cross is wise. And why is it wise? Why is this wise rather than by the power or intelligence expected by men? Why is weakness and foolishness wise? Why does Paul say that of the brothers and sisters who make up the church that this is wise, our weakness is wise, the cross's weakness is wise? Because by this way of salvation and by this body of believers, no one can boast before God. That's why it's wise. Because God will get all the glory. There will be no one who can say anything about God and have any boast apart from God. That's why this is wise. Because God says, I'm going to have all the glory. I'm going to be the one who is worshipped. I'm going to be the one who saves. I'm going to be the redeemer. I'm going to be the just and the justifier. And so this is wise because nobody can boast before God. That's why this is wise. This is wisdom. God receives all the glory, and we receive all the mercy. Jesus is not defeated on the cross. Satan is crushed. We are not saved by our strength or our glory or our works, but by our weakness and humility and repentance. And that apparent foolishness will confound the wisest of the world. And that is just the start of the infinite wisdom of God. As I said, God's wisdom comes to us a thousand different ways and forms. But the root and beginning of God's wisdom is the humility and mercy 
of Jesus on a cross. It is forgiveness and grace where it should not be expected. And we can glory in that wisdom. We could just praise it and worship the God who is wise, who has opened the eyes of our heart to taste and see this wise plan, who has saved us in our tasting and seeing the beauty of his son. We could sing about it. We could compose poetry to it. We could paint pictures of it. We could write stories of salvation and redemption that repeat it like Lewis and Tolkien and 10,000 other writers have. We could, we, could just, we could just praise that wisdom of God. And that could be our church service right there, just marveling at the mystery of a wise God, choosing this way and choosing us to display his glory, and that being wisdom, that God is wise in saving us and wise in the way he saved us, wise in saving you and wise in saving me. Praise God for that. We could just spend our church service just doing that. And that would be a great and glorious and good service just to celebrate that wisdom. But there's, a, there's even more. Because <laughs> God has told us how he's most glorified in us and, and, and how he is most glorified in us in his wisdom is, is by putting his brand of wisdom on display. Remember Ephesians? The church puts his wisdom on display And how do we do that? By using it, by being transformed by that wisdom in our walk as disciples together in his church. The wisdom of the cross and God is undeserved grace. It is meant to be used so that God receives the greatest glory and we have the greatest possible boast in him. Right? That's why Paul said that nobody should boast except boast in him. That's what we want, right? I mean, as Christians... Do we not want our greatest boast to be in God? Do we not want to boast as much as we possibly can in God's accomplishment? Wouldn't that basically define what being a Christian is? As a Christian, the one thing I want to do in my life is have the ultimate boast in God. That's what it is to be Christian. To boast as much as we possibly can in what God has accomplished. That's how God receives the greatest glory. When our boast in him is greatest, God is most glorified. So, so that's what we should be seeking when we seek the wisdom of God. When, when we're on our knees and in our Bible seeking the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God we should be seeking is, how can what I do next give me boast in him? How can this glorify God? That, that, that I can't boast. The next step in my life is how I have the least boast and God has the most boast. And how does that work out practically? Whatever he brings our way, whatever we do in response will result in our boasting in him. That's the wisdom of God. If whatever I decide to do next will bring God boasting, then that is a wise thing to do. Whatever is going on. As Christians, to order our lives and walk in our steps in such a way that our boast is always, and to every degree, a boast in God. Not to seek to use God's wisdom to manipulate our circumstances, or to, you know, get things better for us, but only to see our boast be in Him. If every Christian did that, 
Like, just imagine that. Just imagine if every Christian was living every day to maximize their boast in God through Christ. Then if every Christian did that, then the same wisdom of apparently foolish love on the cross would be played out in millions upon millions of repeating echoes as we follow God out of our sin and our sinful situations via humility and repentance and weakness over our sin, and forgiveness with grace and mercy for the sins of others. This is what I'm saying. As we go through our life, every victory over sin through repentance and humility or forgiveness and mercy, every victory over sin and the effects of sin by the grace and mercy of God is an answering echo to the ultimate victory of the cross. And that's the wisdom of God on display. Christ on a cross, forgiving, being merciful, bearing our sin. And so when I'm dealing with my sin or I'm dealing with the sins of others towards me, if I'm to apply the wisdom of God, I'm going to walk through that in such a way that God gets the greatest boast, that he gets the greatest glory. What would be most glorifying to God in this situation? Probably that I forgive the one that's offended me. If I'm in my sinful situation, what gives God the greatest boast? Probably if I'm victorious over my sin. Right? So then I'm thinking as a Christian, as I'm there in my prayer closet reading my Bible, God, how do you get the greatest boast out of this? How do you get the greatest glory out of this? Even my sin, how do you get the greatest glory out of my sin? How do you get the greatest glory out of this person who's sinning against me? Because God will use everything for his glory, including our sin and their sin. There is nothing that God will not redeem in the end for his glory. that, That we could just learn and lean into this apprehension and application of God's wisdom. God is wise in how he has dealt with sin. God is wise in how to defeat sin and its effects. Follow God's wisdom and echo it, repeat it, practice it for your freedom and his glory. Whatever sin you're facing, whatever sin has been sinned against you, victory is found in turning to God's wisdom for the answer. And God's wisdom is all summed up in the cross and what Christ has done. If you're a sinner and you're stuck in sin today, he has more joy in store for you than you can ever receive from that sin that you are cherishing. His wisdom of repentance and victory and freedom will set you free from that sin. He has given us his truth and wisdom in his word. And in treasuring his son, you will find wisdom and freedom from your sin. If you are sinned against today, he has more joy and victory in store for you when you follow the wisdom of his mercy and grace and forgiveness towards sinners than if you harbor bitterness and resentment and allow the sin of others to destroy what God has in store for you. Don't let the foolishness of this world destroy your joy. Embrace the wisdom of God. Whether you're the sinner or the sinned against, God's glory is so displayed by his grace and forgiveness that the Apostle Paul even had to warn the early church not to overthink the application of it. This is the clue. Romans 5 is the clue when you're getting on the right track about the wisdom of God in terms of overcoming sin and his glory and his boasting in it. 
Because Paul heard when he was writing to the church in Rome that some Christians wanted to give God so much glory, they understood this perfectly. They wanted to give God so much glory in his grace and forgiveness and the wisdom of the cross that they figured the more they sinned, God got even greater glory. They're like, okay, I get it. Let's sin. Because God will just save even bigger sinners and get all the glory. And Paul's like, you're on the right track there. He says in Romans 5, He says, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Oh, what an incredible truth. That's exactly what I'm talking about this morning. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin so that grace may abound? No. May it never be. You almost got it, my Roman friends. You were on the right track about God's glory displayed in the wisdom of the gospel, but you went a little bit sideways. Paul says that it is not the right application of this knowledge. Of course, we do not deliberately continue to sin so that the wisdom of God in saving sinners and the glory of God in his grace is displayed more. That is not actually the perfect way to display his glory. Rather, what Paul teaches is that we want to be trophies of his grace and victorious in our life, which Paul describes in all of Romans chapter 8 of the victorious Christian life. Paul says you want to you be a trophy of his grace. That's how he gets the greatest boast. Not merely examples of God's grace being needed, which is what Paul describes in Romans 7. In Romans 7, Paul is in struggling with his flesh, and he knows that his mind agrees with the mind of God, but his flesh is trapped, and he cannot set himself free from this body of sin and death. That's Romans 7. He says, that's, that's not how God gets the glory. He will be glorified when, when your sin is, is overcome. When your sin is paid for on the cross, God will get the glory. But the, the, rather than sinning more and staying in Romans 7, Paul says, move on to Romans 8. You want to really give God the boast as the church. The church wants to put the wisdom of God on display. Then it's Romans 8. It's living in the spirit and it's victory over our sin that gives God the greatest boast. But when we do sin... And when we encounter sin, we must respond with the wisdom of God, as that wisdom was displayed most clearly on the cross in Jesus, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known, not just on earth, but to heavenly powers and authorities. We only glorify the wisdom of God when we, the church, join him in his apparent foolishness, which is really wisdom. And love our enemies and forgive those who sin against us and humble ourselves even to what feels like death to us in the face of their fallen desires and their sinful actions. And as we do that, in so doing, we provide the opportunity for our redemption and their salvation and victory over sin and victory over Satan that would defeat us. So that we, in our sinful situations, become trophies of God's wisdom. We put on display that God was wise in forgiveness, and God was wise in mercy, and God was wise in humility, and God was wise in weakness. And that's the wisdom of God that we put on display. 
Overcoming our destruction and defeat, snatching us like brands from the fire, healing and restoring people and situations that the world would look at and think, this situation deserves to be broken. That person deserves to be punished. This is a situation that deserves to fall apart. And that's exactly when the church comes in and says, yeah, from your point of view it does, but from God's point of view it deserves to be healed and redeemed and renewed and forgiven. And the church will look at those situations and those sinners and go, I don't get it. I don't understand. And God will say, that's the point. Because I'm wise and you're not. And the church then will echo God's forgiveness at the cross over and over and over again. You will echo the cross as you participate in the wisdom of the cross in your own life. And there will be 10 million, 10 billion echoes of the cross. And it's wisdom. The apparent foolishness of humility and repentance and forgiveness will be echoes of the wisdom of the cross. If we follow Jesus into the wisdom of humility and forgiveness and bearing with one another and shouldering the burden of sins against us and repenting of our sins against others, then the wisdom of God in the cross is glorified. And at that point, our boast is only in God's wise work. We will have nothing to boast in except God because he will have done it all. Our boast will be that God forgave my sin, that God rescued me from this body of sin and death, that God transferred me from darkness to light, from death to life, that God broke the bondage of my past, that he destroyed my false idols, my dependencies. God replaced lies with truth and confusion with clarity and selfishness with forgiveness. My boast is in the transforming power of God in my life. Our boast then becomes that by trusting in the wisdom of God and following his way through these sinful situations that I learned and I echoed from the cross, by doing that, my boast is that he saved my marriage, he healed my broken relationships, he made me able to forgive my enemies and love the unlovable. I was able to put my hope in God and not my circumstances. I became fully satisfied in the creator rather than the creation. I was able to walk by the spirit and not by the flesh. And angels and authorities and powers in heavenly places marvel at the wisdom of God as he put it on display in my life and in your life and in the life of the church. Because if every Christian did this, we would have no boast and God would get all the glory. It would be incredible. It would be amazing. That that we would boast in every step of our life And take whatever action would give God the greatest glory. God is omniscient and wise. Let me back up. What will we boast in if we hate our enemies? What will we boast in if roots of bitterness destroy our joy? If our sin and the sin of others shipwreck our satisfaction? If we embrace the foolishness of the world as our guide to life, if we listen to the world rather than to God, will that honor him? Will that be our boast? Will that bring him glory? Will that redeem us, restore us, heal us? Will that make us trophies of his grace? What will we boast in if we reject all God's wisdom? God is omniscient and wise. There's nothing he does not already know. 
that he has not known for eternity because he did not learn it. To, to suggest that God learned something means that there was a time he did not know it. But God has always, for eternity, known all things perfectly. He knows you. He knows your sin. He knows the sins against you. He knows your need. He knows your weakness, your temptation. And God says there is a way of wisdom you can walk in that will glorify both him and make you the best possible trophy of his grace the greatest recipient of his redemption. And it is not the wisdom of the world, but it's his wisdom as it's found in Jesus. And one of the ways you might recognize the wisdom of God, if you're sitting here today, especially when you're walking in your flesh, is that it will seem like foolishness. In your sinful heart and my sinful heart, when we are most tempted by anger or hate or resentment or bitterness, then God's wisdom will seem foolish and we will want to reject it. We will say, no, I don't want to humble myself. I don't want to forgive. I don't want to be weak. I don't want to serve. I don't want to submit. That's foolishness. But at that point, that's a good hint that that's probably the wisdom of God. That thing that in your flesh you think is weakness is wisdom. And that's exactly when you need it the most, when it seems the least attractive. The wisdom of God is found in humility and weakness, but it leads you and others into your situation to salvation and restoration and healing and life and flourishing, and even better, it glorifies God on the other side of it. Is it really that time? I'm sorry. I'm closing. I'm closing here. In closing, I'm going to come back to God's omniscience. It's so important that we approach God with the, for his wisdom in our circumstances and to remember that God knows. God knows. Our joys, our victories, our laughter, our desires, our hopes, our concerns, our passions, our needs, God knows them all. He's omniscient. God knows our sorrow, our hardship, our fears, our weakness, our limits, our points of failure, our temptation, our deepest, darkest secrets, our sins. God knows them all. You will not surprise or shock him. There is nothing that will surprise God when you share your heart with him. Nothing you are keeping a secret. You cannot curate your social media profile with God. You can't filter it so that he loves you more. And there's nothing he will discover about you today or in the future that will cause him to love you less. Because God already knows it. And God already knowing it has decided he loves you. He's already decided it. You are loved by God. Embrace yourself. God was wise to love you. I don't even get that. How was it wise for God to love me? But it was wise. Even the microphone knew I was going long. Make sure that's going through to the TV, too. God was wise to love us. And we just don't fully get that. And our lives are lessened for it. But we also cannot yet fully know God. Oh, sorry, I've got to go back to my place. <laughs> God knows you, and he loves you, and he was wise to love you. 
The fact that God knows you and he knows the sins that have wounded you and that he loves you anyway and has a path of redemption for you is wonderful news. To be completely known and to completely know God is the most intimate and wonderful thing that right now we only dimly experience half of. We barely understand and operate with this knowledge that God completely knows us. We just barely get that. And the more we get it, the better our lives will be. But we also can't yet fully know God. But there is a day coming when we not only will be fully known, but we will fully know. Paul writes, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have, past tense, already been fully known. To be completely known and yet loved. Isn't that basically all of our greatest desires? That someone would know us, absolutely know us perfectly, and yet still love us. Well, the good news this morning is you are. Not by your wife or by your best friend, but by God himself. And someday, face to face, we will know God as we ought to as well. Knowing us, God still loved us. Knowing us, God will love us, and we will love him for eternity. Let our boast be in God alone. Let us apply the wisdom of the cross, mercy, forgiveness, love, humility to every sin that assails us, and in so doing, resound the wisdom of God to the heavenly authorities, and maybe to some earthly ones as well. Let's pray. Father God, Your wisdom and omniscience carries with it, as all of your attributes do, incredible ramifications for our salvation and for our lives. And so, Father, I wish we could spend hours just talking about this. And in our life groups this week, some of us will have that opportunity to just spend hours talking about applying the wisdom of the cross and the gospel to our lives so that every circumstance and step of our life as a Christian is an echo, a resounding chorus that repeats the wisdom of the cross over and over and over again. And that we would cherish a God who knows us and wisely chose to love us. I don't even know how to finish that. We just thank you. That that's who you are. It's not just what you do, God. It is who you are. And you are faithful to yourself. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.